Hello, and welcome to the Unwelcome Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Owsley, and today I have the honor of joining us today on the podcast, Paul Rossi. He is the Senior Education Analyst for Legal Insurrection and is also on the advisory board of the Educational Liberty Alliance. And he came to great acclaim, well, not acclaim, but known to the public uh, for speaking out against critical race theory at Grace Church in New York. Thanks, Paul, for being here. Thanks, Mark. It's great to be here. Well, I wanted to bring you on the podcast today. Uh, I've followed you ever since you came out with your infamous letter uh, to your school that made all the headlines uh, back when very few people were standing up to this, uh, especially in public, when when teachers were being cowered in all institutions, public and private alike. And first of all, I just want to commend you on your courage for doing that. That was, that was, it was an inspiration to all of us in the education field and gave us kind of a path that we could walk in order to start fighting back against this machine of, of wokeness that's, that's happened to us. But I wanted to bring you on to, first of all, talk about what that fight was like, how it, how it, how it came about for you, what, was going on in Grace Church School. What is Grace Church School? Because my, my audience is largely in Oklahoma and, and in the Midwest, and many may not have heard of you, um, and which is a shame because they all need to hear of you and what you've done, and, and so they can draw some strength from your courage. So, Paul, what brought you into this fight? What were you doing before, and how did you get into it? Well, I started teaching um, about switching to a teaching career about 12 years ago. And um, I taught in some public schools, you know, some SAT prep for a while. I did a lot of tutoring. And then I, I got a job in 2012 with a new high school, a private high school called Grace Church School in Manhattan. Uh, it's a hundred year old institution. It's, it's connected to a church, one of the most beautiful churches in the, in the city, um, a Gothic revival church designed by the same architect that did St. Patrick's. So it has this rich tradition, but they were starting this new school uh, with the intention to, to make it a very progressive school. Grace had already been, you know, going in the progressive direction, uh, but now they were going to um, satisfy what, from a business perspective, they saw as a need of the colleges, the top tier elite colleges that were looking for students, looking to admit students that were sort of pre-wokeified or woke-weaned. Uh, as I call it, uh, on these ideas. So so they really, it was from the beginning, the school was designed to meet a market need. And I was thrilled to get uh, to get work there. I was a left liberal myself. I thought of myself as a progressive. Um, and I really found a home there. I loved it very much at the beginning. I was used to a corporate world in my 30s and 40s, or 30s and early 40s. So when I when I changed careers, it was a completely different, very nurturing environment. But gradually, as the years passed, I was teaching math, and I loved the independence. I loved that I could, you know, the connection that I could could make with the students to help them learn. But at, you know, over time, I saw this ideology really take hold uh, in a series of both extracurricular events um, as well as in the courses, the, the classes themselves, humanities started in the humanities and then spread as we were hiring younger teachers too. And you got, I started to see the, the, the sense of sort of messianic duty that these teachers had towards 
social change, creating change agents, as they say. And um, certainly after Trump was elected, it went into high gear. And I, you know, I went from being a progressive to sort of seeing the effect on the students of the ideology and how it manifested in their social relations with each other and their, their anxieties around being able to speak and articulate dissent in class. That, that to me was the, that chilling effect was the most disturbing thing that I saw. And I, I recognize this just as a math teacher. Of course, in private school, all the teachers wear different hats. So I, I was right. involved also in, in being instrumental in kind of this indoctrination into anti-racism. We became an explicitly anti-racist school, it's called in, the, in 2015. And it just kind of accelerated from there. But I, I went from grumbling in my beard, having a few, uh, a few run-ins with the administration, being sort of called in the, you know, called to task a few times, and uh, to rec- to sort of feeling that this was something that I had a duty to to do something about. Uh, and I started to look for the right opportunity to say something publicly in the school um, you know, about six months before I attended a racially segregated Zoom meeting where the facilitator was delivering a lecture as if it was fact around white supremacy and the characteristics of white supremacy. It's a very, it, it's, it's ubiquitous now because it, it, mm-hmm. it's permeated this, this quote unquote scholarship has permeated you know, all of, higher education and K through 12, where things like objectivity and individualism and even a right to comfort are racialized properties mm-hmm. of white culture. Uh, and, you know, one, I just started to see every one of the, the kids with head bowed saying, you know, yes, we're going to do better. Yes. I, you know, white people invented racism and invented slavery and we're, and all these things that are just, you know, and, Marxist in orientation because they've been told by their teachers that capitalism itself is connected to white supremacy and everything is this, this unified theory of, of, of oppression essentially where anything Mm -hmm. falls into that bucket. And I, I saw that the facilitator put up the slide with white supremacy characteristics. There are 15 of them. And, you know, I, I, said, you know, what? And she said, as you look at these characteristics, you may find yourself experiencing as white people, you may find yourself experiencing white feelings. I didn't uh, know feelings could be white. Right. So, the, so even the reaction, <laughs> there's, it's such a solipsistic bubble that even the reaction mm-hmm. to these, these preposterous assertions are themselves implicative of whiteness. Mm-hmm. So you're just, you're in this trap of where, what, however you react to it, which is not you know, head bowed assent to the, these, this uh, right. belief system is whiteness. So I, yeah. I said, you know, I, I had to say something because I just was like, these children have never seen an authority figure, never seen a teacher publicly question what is going on here. So I, I just, that was kind of my breaking point. And I, I realized I was going to do this publicly in front of 200 people and 30, 40 of my colleagues. So I said, well, you know, here we go. So I said, yeah. you know, I tried to keep it respectful. I tried to, you know, I said, what, um, you know, why are these, 
these characteristics being framed as racialized when these are things that any people of any race or racialized in any particular way could manifest. There's, you know, if you want to talk about, we could talk about, you know, these things manifesting in China or manifesting in Africa mm-hmm. or any of the other multi-ethnic places in the world. You know, why are you, why is you see, why is this, and, you know, and, and that, it kind of opened the floodgates and some kids I was happy to see that I was successful. And I, you mm-hmm. know, some kids questioned me back. They're like, you know, you don't understand Mr. Rossi because you have privilege. And I was like, okay. Right. Uh, but then some kids were like, you know what? I, I, I think that this is, you know, I, I feel this way too a lot of the time. And some mm-hmm. of the teachers even were saying, you know, I don't think I should be, I don't think my whiteness determines my behavior or socially determines my behavior. You know, so this kind of kind of erupted and the dam broke. And even the woman who who arranged the meeting admits in the meeting that that my questioning was actually really constructive, you know. And so like I it, you know, but it, it did build to a point where one of the people in the meeting um was really disturbed by what by the objections that I had raised and was watching this sort of prison break, mental prison break, mm-hmm. and said, you know, you don't understand, you know, I'm, I'm shocked that there is a fellow teacher, a colleague among us who doesn't understand that, that they are white and we are all white and therefore we have privilege and we can, we are born into whiteness. And, you know, he just kind of got on the high horse and I interrupted him and I was, I, I just wasn't going to take it where he's just dunking on me in front of kids. And I just said, you know, well, I'm sorry that you're stereotyping yourself. Oh, um, and, he, yeah. and, you know, he just, this was flummoxed and you came after me personally in front of a lot of kids. And this is, you know, mm-hmm. this, you know, this is not, this is an unprofessional moment, uh, as mm-hmm. it was later conveyed to me. So, you know, but it was unprofessional this, on your part, not on his right, part. Right. Exactly. So, you know, we yes. both, we both, you know, and he, we have these things called norms. Um, yeah. <laughs> which are, one of the norms is don't interrupt your colleagues, but another norm is, you know, don't generalize. Yeah. So my, my, my working within this quasi legalistic framework, my object, my response is, well, you know, yes, I violated a norm by interrupting a colleague. However, he was, everyone was trampling on norms and generalizing about white people the whole time. So how, you know, what are you going to, right. You know, tit yeah. for tat. About, you know, we're both about fair play here. Right. right. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, um, but that didn't really help. The problem was that there was a simultaneous BIPOC, meeting for students and faculty that were racialized as black or indigenous people of color. So this whole process was segregated. Right. The whole process. So, but Mm -hmm. that meeting ended before ours did because we delved into all this stuff. And then, so some of the students and faculty in that meeting were shoulder surfing on the, on their friends who, because this all took place over zoom on zoom. So, you know, they were like, what's going on here, Mr. Rossi, what, why is, and I, why is he questioning the whole premise of our anti-racist quote unquote goals? Mm-hmm. I actually have the same goals. I just don't share the premises, which is different. Right. But, but essentially they, you know, I got into trouble because, because they had segregated the meetings, everyone assumed the worst people were scurrying around like what happened in the white meeting. And so the, the, it was, sorry, like, he, it was like, is no, ridiculous. it is, it is yeah. ridiculous because there, there's, there are, I counted them. There's 14 different committees devoted to diversity, equity, and, and, and inclusion, racial justice, anti-racism. So on. at the student faculty administration board level, all these different levels, mm-hmm. they have 14 different committees and 
every one of these committees were scurrying around trying to explain what I did, even when they weren't in the meeting, because not everybody yeah. was in the meeting. And mm-hmm. the people who weren't in the meeting were saying, oh, what did he say? And, and in this atmosphere, the hermeneutics of suspicion, of course, like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm the racially fragile white math teacher, you know, who, right. Uh, well, so, you know, and I was being used as post this meeting, I was used as an object lesson in some of the other mm-hmm. teachers' classrooms. So, that, so you know, they, they were waiting up. for you. They you were know, waiting exactly. for you. And so yeah. I, you know, I, 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 uh, but through it all, you know, I was, I was glad I did what I did because I knew yeah. that I, I knew that it had done. I had, I had maybe not done it as artfully as I wanted, but you know, I, I, the moment was chosen. The moment had an impact. And I kept being told, you know, you've harmed the people of color in this community. You, by your objections, you have harmed them. You have harmed mm-hmm. their ancestors. You have harmed their families. You have made them feel unsafe. And I was even accused of harassment that I had yeah. harassed the children by asking a question. But, but when it came down to it, the most damp, the most disruptive question I asked, which I just put in the chat, actually in the zoom chat was do to what extent must we uh, accept uh, an identity that society has placed upon us? That is like, mm-hmm. do we need to, deter, do we need to identify as society sees us? And that's the whole premise of, all of right. this, like uh, critical race this. theory, right? Like you're socially yes. determined because people see you as white and therefore you have privilege and you're socially right. oppressed because you're, you're determined to be oppressed because people are oppressed. Well, so, you know, at what point do you say, you know, do I, if everybody thinks I should jump off a bridge, should I jump? Should off I a jump off a bridge? That's exactly right. right. Instead, I want to, you know, I want to yeah. hit, I want to hit something in that real quick though, because mm-hmm. you said that there were 15 committees, right. That are all devoted yeah. to some, some subset of diversity, equity, and inclusion, which, just to point out to the, my audience, which I say this all the time, DEI is the enforcement of our, it's the enforcement arm of CRT. Um, and there are many, there are many, I call them divisions of ideological enforcement. That's, that's their whole job is that's that good. their, yeah. their, their desire is to, uh, or their whole mandate is to implant this ideology within an institution, both socially and policy. Because if you read How to Be an Anti-Racist, right, it Kendi defines anti-racism explicitly in the in terms of public policy or institutional policy, and it's all designed to transform an institution towards a certain political goal, right? But I want to hit that fact that there were, by the time you spoke up, there were already fifteen committees or so of people who were waiting for a you for you or some version of you um, to combat. And they, they do that through their, what they call their spheres of influence. And this is all from the social, the social ecological model. You'll see everywhere. Actually, you're starting to see it in Kendi uses it in his book and with graphics on how to be an anti-racist you know uh, it's being used in health aspects, but it's basically you start with the person and the next sphere of influence that you get is those directly that you have direct control over, which in a school setting while kids are in school, are your students. Right. And so this whole apparatus that mobilized against you was designed to mobilize against you and was designed to make an example out of you. And they were hoping for no one to speak up, but when you spoke up, they had a plan in place. I think that's part of the reason why mm. why the meeting got out early 
their meeting got out early, knowing that if your meeting was, uh, it either got out early because everyone agreed and was kowtowed, or it goes late because somebody's arguing. And then they can do it to you exactly what they did. And I've seen this over and over and over again on, on whether it's in private school, a public school, the university level, um, which we'll get into in a little bit, but it's the same mode of operation and it's all DEI centered. Um, and I don't want to interrupt your story because I want to get to the letter and everything that you wrote when you really came out. But I do want to ask, well, let, let me just, we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. I want you to okay. go ahead and finish. Yeah. I mean, cause this, doing. this story uh, it's, it's involved cause it has several stages that. Escalate. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. Um, so, so you spoke so, out in the meeting. And, so now we're, the meeting. Now we're to, and, you know, mm -hmm. I had, this was, this happened in February of 2021, the meeting. Mm -hmm. um, they couldn't even refer to the meeting. They, they simply called it the events of Wednesday. So it was like a kind of a 9-11, <laughs> uh, which I found, you know, interesting. But, mm -hmm. but I had, I had two hour meetings with my head of school, with the assistant head of school. I had a separate meeting with the head of the whole school um, where I was really, asked to apologize, you know, asked to recant, essentially, they said, you know, mm -hmm. how, do, first they tried, they tried to elicit what I felt about what I said. And when it was clear that I had no contrition, and I told them I have no contrition, mm -hmm. and they just, they didn't know, they realized that they had to, like, now put the screws to me. So they went mm -hmm. on, went ahead and said, you know, you, this was the meeting with the head of high school and the assistant head of high school. They they just made repeatedly escalating accusations to sort of set the set the bar where they could actually pursue some action against me or reason for termination, which was, um, you know, you have made the kids unsafe. You are pedagogically flawed. You know, you you took advantage of this opportunity to turn it into your own intellectual circus for your own individual benefit. Uh, they said they made ever more outlandish claims. And one of the things that the head of the high school said was, you know, I had caused a neurological disturbance in students, beings and systems, and that I had failed to acknowledge the greater good that which transcended intellectual inquiry. That is what the was safety. what was there any yeah. data provided to prove that? Or no, was no, it just well, no, I mean, it's funny. There was. At every at certain at certain places these administrators generally will say things like studies show or research shows, right? But we all know that this research is ideal laundered yes. and peer, you mm -hmm. know, peer reviewed by ideological peers and so on. But so, but, but essentially, you know, that the basis, I remember him saying something where he said, we know that asking questions in an atmosphere of anxiety closes the mind. He kept using this thing, but you know, safety and 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 community open the mind you know like so mm -hmm. like so so this this cultishness where you're going to create yeah. this environment where everyone is relaxed and passive and and safe means mm -hmm. that they can impart the not the higher greater good right and so, 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 so the, that they, that's the they, kind of the mentality they catastrophize dissent yes if, if exactly. any form. That's a great and yeah. and they catastrophize dissent and they they overmoralize uh, any any agreement on the subject for which they've set their premises, right? right? So it becomes this instant dichotomy, this black and white thinking, 
right? Yes. And yeah. and yet that's why you'll see in a lot of the uh, this indoctrination sessions, frankly, with the students that they would have is that they would preface them with these meditative exercises called, you know, mindfulness, where they would put you in a passive receptive state that is, you know, you would have to make these foreground, these, these acknowledgements, pre preconditioning the event, things like, you know, I, I resolve to be open-minded. I resolve to listen. I resolve to, um, you know, these affirmations that, that are just designed to mm -hmm. lull you into this state of acceptance, right? So they do this. Mm -hmm. It's all on purpose. They know what they're yeah. doing. They're trying to minimize the Senate. They're trying to minimize obstacles to getting people to adopt this point of view. Uh, and that's, you know, anyone who challenges that is like you just walk into a room and take a dump on the floor. That's what I do, yeah. essentially, to, yeah. to their reality. Mm -hmm. uh, and and guess what? Other people started to do the same, and that's what they were afraid of. Is the the impact. yes? So so um, I mean, it, it it escalated from there. But one of the things I did before I they reassigned my course, the, all my classes. They claimed the students didn't feel safe in my classes. Um, some of them, I'm sure, didn't. Um, but you know, I was also I had a gag order, so I couldn't talk to any of my students about it. I was you know prevented from. And so every every relation every discussion of it between me and another student or had to be mediated by by the Office of Community Engagement, which is you know the institution's mm -hmm. arm of people that that intermediate themselves into all disputes and mm -hmm. and um, there's also the Institutional Culture Committee. I mean, this is also Soviet, right? But yes. uh, you know, I I wound up recording my conversation with the head of the entire school. George Davison, who had been the head of school for 30 years. And um, he's an old wasp. Yeah. And one of the things he communicated to me in that, me in that session was that he agreed with me that there had been demonization, particularly of the white students who had been um, accused of things that they were not personally responsible for. Mm -hmm. And he had this grand sort of nostrum that he was, we were going to return to this, this full community. And we were going to read at the end of the year, his plan to fix this demonization of children was to read uh, President Lincoln's last in, in, inaugural where, mm -hmm. you know, with malice towards none. And, you know, I'm like, George, <laughs> it's too late. That right. is a that is a fantasy. That is a sort of liberal fantasy. I'm yes. like they have taken over. Like your beautiful school that's lasted a hundred years mm -hmm. uh, has been taken over. And when I said a hundred years, lasted a hundred years, he, he he corrected me. He said, "No, it's over a hundred years." Um, and I was like, "That's that's what you're going to insist you upon that? when you yeah. just admitted that the students are, you know, uh, and it doesn't do any favors for the for the." students labeled depressed either because it just says that, you know, all your problems yeah. are because these white people are keeping you down. So, I mean, I, the whole thing is, a isn't, is, is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And so I released the tape um, after he denied that, yeah. in my article that he had said the things that I took, that I said that he said. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, he had to issue this embarrassing mea culpa. I heard later from, the, from people in the school where he, yeah, he fell on his sword and he's, he's retired. Yeah. His retirement was scheduled before this, but I mean, right. He, but he had other problems in that. It really was unfair in a way. Um, 
because I, I mean, in some ways he knew there was a problem, but it had totally outpaced his ability to control it. Yeah. Right. He just had, he was getting drawn and quartered from multiple interest groups mm -hmm. and someone in that position. It's just the nature of the beast. Well, um, let, let's, t let's dive into those interest groups a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, where, he's the head of school and, and he was put in a position, you know, obviously it had a long career. He had been ahead of a, a, a very successful school for a while. And up until this point had a good reputation. What, what are the interest groups that you think were draw, you know, were, were putting pressure on him from multiple different levels. Um, earlier you had mentioned the universities and what, what it is they want. And, you know, schools like yours, like Grace Church, are, you know, are very much, they draw students from uh, their ability to get into these schools. So there's that end, but what other, what other aspects? Yeah, it's funny. It's a pressure? niche. It's like an ecological niche, right? And you're, you're, as a private school, an elite private school in a sort of hothouse world of elite private schools in, in Manhattan. And, you know, it's essentially like coastal elite liberal um, enclaves is that you are trying to represent yourself as the opposite of what you are. Mm -hmm. In order for your marketing, I mean, they've, they've read up, they don't say private schools anymore. They say independent nope. schools, right? So yep. they don't, everything they do is designed to, to conceal the essentially selective nature of these schools and what what they truly are. So in that in for that they uh, they're they've they've launched themselves uh you know with all with all momentum towards the DEI thing in some ways a lot faster than public schools have because mm -hmm. they have much more of a of an image problem, an optical problem yes. to solve. Um so the good thing is that they have been able to raise their endowments and financial aid for for people who are for you know less resourced groups within the city who mm -hmm. you know want that opportunity we brought in and it's it's that type of just cultural diversity is not bad for a school mm -hmm. but the way that they've actually papered over some of the conflicts within the school which will naturally arise when you have very wealthy kids and and some poor kids who are mm -hmm. you know I'm this kid is going to go to vacation in the Hamptons and this he's in a class right. and with another kid who's going to go to Harlem for two weeks and take care of his, his aunt right. in a, you know, two room right. apartment. That's, that's a real divide. Okay. But because in an urban setting, there's a racial matrix or mm -hmm. racialized matrix overlaying it. It's a lot easier to talk about race than class. So they get, yeah. they, they play on the white guilt. And so they squelch the wealthy kids under the sort of white guilt thing and then they they pump up the oppressed kids with the sort of moral authority and somehow they use a sort of a moral social authority to balance the class issue this is so, the tension this is a lie agreed upon that that they've chosen to sort of maintain harmony within this you know very divergent yeah, it, place it, it seems like they're weaponizing integration of uh, they're weaponizing integration, you know, or, or multicultural, mm -hmm. multi-class systems, right? It's like, mm -hmm. we, if, we, if we were to just allow these students to be students in and of themselves mm -hmm. and, and let them as students work out some of their differences without a top-down kind of view. You, you remember Jonathan Heights, mm -hmm. you know, Greg Lukanoff's uh, Coddling of the American Mind. Yep. It's almost a free play kind of situation where it's like, we don't need to govern their relationships. If you let the kids 
work right. out their own problems. Um, they largely will. Uh, right. most and a lot better than adults sometimes right because they are in the same kind of environment where it is a little bit more egalitarian than it would be say even at a university or definitely in the in the work world right mm -hmm. um because you're all in the same class with the same teacher doing the same homework doing the you know wearing the same uniform especially in a school like grace you know and but but they seem to take this critical race theory lens or even now radical gender theory lens and implant that upon them as an as an effort to fix the problem but in doing mm -hmm. that they're weaponizing this integration would you agree with that mm -hmm. yeah yeah i think that's true i mean the part of the reason why they 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 do that is because they're terribly terribly anxious that the rough patches that will happen if you let the kids sort it out themselves are going are going to be just optically a disaster for them like, you know, mm -hmm. when you let people sort things out, there's going to be some hurt feelings. There's going to be some some actual, you know, problems. Um, mm -hmm. But the problems themselves are tied into this this national mania that, mm -hmm. you know, you know, if you so that's and then the other the other addition to that is that you have this consultant class, which is grifting on that anxiety. So you have these hundreds and hundreds of of consultancies and, and uh, that are coming into these schools and telling the board, you have a racist problem, you have a racism problem and you need us, the experts to tell you how to fix it. Um, and let's go on this retreat, you know, to this remote place. And then they indoctrinate the board members. So, so mm -hmm. George Davison, he was a converted man. I mean, he, he bought into, you know, everyone is, every white person's racist and, you know, our privilege blinds us to, you know, but you know what? The funny thing is he's one of the wealthy, you know, he comes from one of the wealthiest families in, mm -hmm. you know, it, he's got like the second biggest mansion in the Hamptons or whatever. So right. the fact is that these people who have all this material wealth are actually the most vulnerable to being converted because their reality where they didn't let Jews and blacks on them, you know, in the right. golf course until recently and all the mm -hmm. service people and doormen are black, mm -hmm. they actually don't have the middle class rough and tumble things. So to them, the woke vision of the world matches their world. So yes, when the people well, talk I, about, so they fall into the trap, you know, a lot easier than say, you know, I had an upper middle class upbringing. I went to public high school. I was around people of different colors and backgrounds, all, mm -hmm. you know? And so like, I didn't, you know, I don't have this, this crippling guilt. I did to some degree, but I don't have it to that degree. Well, it's, it's, it's the easiest they're weaponizing their empathy, right? Because yes, yeah. the, 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 these, the sympathetic feelings are natural and good, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it, to, to reach out uh, to, especially when you're talking about Grace School, this is a, a religious school, you know, with a base that has a Christian morality to it that, that demands that you look out for, you know, the, the poor and the downtrodden and all of that is part of the actual doctrine of Christianity, right? And, but, you you actually enhance that when you have someone who is very well to do and has been well to do their whole lives but is also taken in the american story of the civil rights movement and saying okay well maybe i can't see what i can't see i don't know what i don't know mm -hmm. and these people are telling me i don't i what i don't know right yeah right and just take it all in and then because these are the people in power 
they adopt this and mm-hmm. implant it into their institutions, not knowing that, wait a minute, what you didn't know was that largely people like I think you and I, who grew up in these more integrated societies, didn't have these problems because we actually worked them out mm-hmm. amongst ourselves and with the people that we actually went to school with. And we, you know, sometimes it got rough, mm-hmm. but I want to, I want to hit this point of the market forces because I think you touched on something that's very, very important here that any business, which if you want to talk private or independent schools, they have competition. And in a, capitalist society we've all agreed that you know competition is good but i think we run into a problem here when the student is a is the commodity right well, a little mm-hmm. bit you know the, you you, you make oh, yeah they're the product yeah they're, you're, yeah they're they're they're, they're they're the product and so therefore um if you if you have these grifter classes that are coming in to imprint this ideology into a new cash cow what are the dangers to because you mentioned also the how this manifests in students right so in that intersection if you want if we can use that word of those two things the market forces and how it affects the students where do you think that that's going first of all how does it affect the student and you're in what you saw in 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 the classroom and how might how do you think we might be able to mitigate that, especially in the private school setting, given the market forces? Uh, you can't. I mean, there there is a, this is happening on multiple levels, all going the same direction. So the top, uh, what are seen to be the top elite schools in in the private sphere, there's six, you know. 2000, 2500 nationally, mm-hmm. they are, they all belong to the same network. This essentially it's an association. It's called an association, the national association of independent schools. And so the national association of independent schools, um, provides best practices around equity and inclusion and, and justice. And they host conferences for the administrators and the teachers and the, um, that are run by the consultants and there's this whole ecosystem where the consultants move in and and through these schools at the same time that they're selling mm-hmm. them services so it really functions like a cartel uh in that when you're when you're an nias member the nias has plausible deniability about how much power they actually have over you and what they tell you to mm-hmm. do uh, their best practices their suggestions their there are handbooks but it also provides cover for the schools themselves. And they can say, well, we're following the best practices of the NIS. And, and so it, it is this marriage, extremely convenient marriage where, you know, if a parent complains about something, they can say, well, we're just following the best practices of the NIS. And it provides legal cover and all these other things. Uh, but the, the end, it really is sort of like the institutional capture of all these individual schools which has become an ideological capture because everyone coming out of the ed schools and coming through the humanities courses that want to become teachers and administrators are all aligned with what their, you know, what the previous generation has taught them around woke ideology, because the, you know, 30, 40 years ago, the academia became a refuge for, 
for radicals in the 60s. And so this what we're seeing is like the children of the children of the revolution moving mm-hmm. through these institutions and carrying the culture with it. And it's it's really created a, a massive groupthink around this where, you know, they may pay lip service to diversity of opinion, but there can be no diversity of opinion around what is a moral imperative. And so these are taken right. as moral imperatives. So there are multiple interlocking forces that are running through these institutions that are still trafficking on their traditional brands, mm-hmm. um, while at the well, same time, it, tradition being a dirty word. So it, yes, it really well, is interesting. And I, I just want to make a point here that this is the NAIS accreditation uh, mm-hmm. website. And the, this is just one point. You said that they have roughly... 1900 2500 schools that they claim as being accreditation right mm-hmm. as, as yeah. that where they have influence but i want to show you something here that approved accreditors for nais membership all of these accreditation institutions are regional if you look at this mm-hmm. and they range from private to you know uh religious schools like episcopal organizations there's isas there's isacs just one of these, um, I believe it's, I want to find the right one, but there is one of these that claim 5,000 schools just by themselves. Hmm. And so yeah. the the web, just like you said, plausible deniability, you know, and this is in states like Texas, it's in states like Colorado, mm-hmm. Florida, um, Oklahoma, you know, all, all of the, a lot of red states, not just blue mm-hmm. states. But by being accredited by one of these institutions, they are being influenced by NAIS because NAIS is influencing these institutions. So they accredit the accreditors, basically. Exactly. And so that's their lever. Right. And this is the, I just want to make this point that we all agree that the, the teachers' unions are bad. Right. In terms of their influence over public schools and where they've pushed this ideology as well. But this these institutions th- this is a a teachers unions on on steroids because there's no public pushback against a private institution that has that is actually um insulated <laughs> by several yep. other private institutions so i just wanted to make that point that this is we need there is no careful. school board. You, there's no school board meeting here. You're not going to even get a get the microphone for not 60 seconds or whatever it is. Right. In fact, the enrollment contracts at these schools are draconian. If you step out of line, if they even hear you questioning the curriculum in a private chat with somebody, you can be expelled. And it's happened re- more recently as, you know, I myself and other teachers and people, have, parents have shined a light on these schools the enrollment contracts over the past few years have gotten even more stringent. So, and if certainly if you're a student, you know, you, you have to do what they say. Um, mm-hmm. And they don't have the same protections for, you know, first amendment, any of that stuff, even though some of them do take some government money, especially like since the pandemic, um, mm-hmm. that's a, that's an ad, that's a vector, but you can maybe attack on that vector, but I, you know, I haven't seen it done successfully yet. Yeah. Um, so you're absolutely right. This is not, um, uh, you know, this is not, this is a market in the barest sense. In other words, 
you also have to think of the switching costs and the elasticity of this market. It's an extremely inelastic market. The switching costs are, are tremendous, especially if a parent has a child in one of these schools and it starts to go woke. Mm-hmm. You know, they have friends. They, it looks bad in your transcript if you switch schools. You have to have a story. It's, it's like yep. changing. It's, it's harder to change than employment because you want stability for your child. So there are, there are tons of pressures. Um, at the same time, parents who are well-resourced, they need a gut check moment where they have to say, look, I'm, I'm going to, I have the resources to homeschool. There's, there are parents that have successful homeschooling that are middle-class, lower middle-class, but if you have the resources, you have to take the status hit mm-hmm. with, with, with the parents of these elite schools status is, is enormous. Um, you have to be able to tell at the cocktail party that, you know, you, you left, um, you know, you left Brearley because, you know, you had something better going on. You mm-hmm. better have a better story to tell. And it can't be, yeah. I'm going to be a hippie homeschool mom because that right. doesn't play well. So well, and, you know, and that, it, the, yeah, the assumption so, is so, going to be that there's something wrong with your child. Right. There's something wrong, wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. until that there is such a reaction that it actually becomes a status blow to maintain mm-hmm. kids in these schools, you're not going to see a change. And, you know, these schools are going to continue to be hollowed out and traffic in their brands because there are mm-hmm. lines out the door. Like uh, some yeah. kind of mass exodus from these elite schools is not going to do a damn thing because there are, you know, plenty of aspirational parents. And endowments. And even if yes. the endowments, even if their annual funds go down, there are people willing to pick up the slack. So yep. that's why my my feeling is uh, when parents ask me, some parents, you know, tortured parents will ask me, what do I do? Uh, you know, I feel like, you know, I can work with this administration. Um, the administrations are experts at gaslighting and humoring you if you're a parent mm-hmm. and telling you that, no, this isn't going on or you know, right. we're making changes, but until you actually see it in the policy, on the website, in the vision statement, in the mission statement, they haven't done jack shit. And you have yes. to, you have to accept that. You have to realize that, you know, they don't need you. Right. They have they people don't. waiting to, to get there. So, I mean, I, I have to have some, some difficult reality checks with some of these parents um, mm-hmm. because, There's nothing you can do. I want to, I want to point out this one parallel too. You had mentioned that that these are not school boards. You don't have the uh, opportunity to go to a meeting and tell them what to do. You don't have the opportunity to vote them out. Um, Mm -hmm. It's very much the university model um, where you have a board of regents that may be appointed by the other regents or in, in the case of universities, the governor or whatever it may be, the legislature. But once they're there, um, they're, it's very difficult to hold them accountable for anything because the only one who can do that oftentimes is the, is the person who put them there. And then they have direct oversight over the person who actually actively runs the institution. And if they are in full support of that person, there's nothing going to happen. And that's where I think we, we need to understand that private schools are not this bastion of of safety from the woke uh, injection into public schools at times, because you may be able to vote with your feet, but there's a, there's an expense to voting with your feet, you know, and if we're going to go that direction, we need to make sure that we 
look at NAIS and ISAS and all of that situation because we will end up throwing the baby out with the bathwater in terms of our own abilities to control our education and the education of our children because having worked in private schools myself as a director, what, what Paul just said is absolutely correct. What we are trained to do is listen to you and make you feel better. We're not trained to let you influence what it is that we do. Um, We're trained to make you think that you are. And nine times out of 10 parents, I will say this, we are successful in doing that. Um, You come in, uh, whether it's, you know, you come in because your kid didn't get the part in the play that you thought she should get, or they didn't get the place on the team that you thought they should get, or, or, they're teaching race essentialism in the classroom and, and collective guilt. It doesn't matter. We will listen and take it all in. We will make you feel like you're the most heard person in the world. And you will walk out of there thinking that you have really made a difference and nothing has changed. Nothing at all. Mm-hmm. And just to show you, this is NAIS is that I just want to highlight this diversity and inclusion mm-hmm. page and all of the things that they are working towards in terms of global education and cultural humility. And um, when they say cultural humility, it is exactly what Paul here is talking about um, and what he dealt with. Uh, And this is a mandate. Everyone wants to be accredited by NAIS, uh, the elite schools, because it is the elite accreditation institution. And if they're not, they have to lower their tuitions. They don't get the, 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 uh, the elite Ivy schools don't get your uh, won't give you preference when, when considering your students and that if they, you don't get your kids into Harvard, then you've now become a second tier, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. institution yeah. and the market has determined that. Right. But a couple of things. I, I Yeah. That I just wanted to point out on this page. If you scroll down a little bit. Yes, sir. Uh, under featured products right there, that, that book, mm-hmm. Hopes and Fears, Working with yes, Today's Indefensible Parents. I would say that book is the sort of Rosetta Stone for how administrators talk to parents. So if you're a parent at one of these schools, get that book because they explicitly say some pretty shocking stuff in there. They say things like, you know, how to work with black parents, how to work you know, <laughs> with black parents who will never fully trust you. Um, you know, that, that's a wild assumption. Yeah. Well, no one will fully trust anyone. Why would, why would it be, you know, so, you know, that it teaches them to sort of market segment you as a parent and they're going to run a different game on you depending on your race. And one Mm -hmm. of the things in there too, that's interesting. It says, you know, that there are this group of parents called the five percenters and the five percenters Mm -hmm. can't be reasoned with. They're totally irrational and you just have to, you know, completely stonewall them. Um, so all the little tricks in there uh, are very interesting. Um, also books about handbooks about corporate governance. Very often they're mm-hmm. in violation of their own corporate governance uh, policies, which you can sometimes get them on. Um, and the role of the board is interesting. So there's been in this push as, as these schools have become more uh, festooned with woke ideology, the consultants are insistent that the board should stay at a 3,000 foot, 30,000 foot view and they shouldn't get involved in the day to day operation of the school. And that's a way for them to sort of keep them at arm's length, because a lot of mm-hmm. the board members, if they knew what was going on, they wouldn't be happy about it, even yeah. if they are handpicked by the, you know, the head of school. Um, mm-hmm. So they 
there are lots of institutional game. There's lots of institutional game getting run on these places. Mm-hmm. Um, so be aware of that. Uh, I just want to point that out. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's very good information. I want to I want to switch gears here a little bit because it seems that, especially recently, uh, in the last few months, uh, you've had you've had the switch of focus from not focus, but, but the movement towards a, a radical gender ideology. Okay. Mm-hmm. And first I want you to just, do you think that critical race theory and this whole race essentialism and the radical gender movement are connected and if so, how can, how how are the, how are they connected? Yeah, I do, and I think that the you know the the thing that binds them is identity. They treat identity in different ways, but essentially they are about um, identity, uh, gender. The you know I think um, James Lindsay's talked about this. The 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 difference between radical gender theory and critical race theory is that in critical race theory, it's about cleaving to the identity that society has put upon you um, mm-hmm. as a, as a power move, as a way to, to create a block that can act politically with, ge- with gender theory. It's kind of the inversion of that because you are, you're trying to break down the existing boundaries of uh, mm-hmm. the existing categories in society. The irony is that racial categories are actually not based in biology in the sense that they're, we have ethnic things and that the gender is. So they are undermining yes. what is fixed and fixing what is not. Um, and These so everybody's going higgledy piggledy to sort of dismantle everything. So, you, mm-hmm. so the, you know, for, for the child that is a boy, mm-hmm. um, the idea is like, well, are you really a boy? maybe you feel like a girl or are you fear a girl? And because ultimately, you know, you, we, we, there's this sort of protean state of queerness um, mm-hmm. and society is putting these labels on you and maybe you're not comfortable with your label or what you were assigned at birth. So you, may, you have to, un, you have to discover yourself. So it plays into um, the, the journey of self-discovery, uh, which yeah. is part of the part of one's education. And mm-hmm. so it, it aligns, it, it aligns with that very well. And, and so they're able to do that and, and create this oppositional way of looking at society and the status quo around the self-interest of your identity and what, right. what the story that you tell yourself. So they find a different way to create the, the dialectic, the contradiction. Well, um, and, and the just, just want to, just want to highlight something there when you talked earlier about norms, right? Norms are the thesis. Queer theory is explicitly, you know, its whole mo- its whole premise is to uh, break down norms, mm-hmm. whether you're talking about gender or, or any aspect of that, you know, uh, your, your pronouns, all language, but more so than even critical race theory, it is designed to break down norms. So there's your antithesis. Mm-hmm. And so you have your norms, your thesis, and your antithesis, your breaking down of the norms in terms of gender and sex and those things, and they're supposed to collide and create what a Marxist utopia, right? And that that is the kind of the essence mm-hmm. of Marxism. Um, but the I think endless queering it, of society. Yeah, we need to queer yes. everything. Yep. Yeah, queer everything. And so we've seen this manifest in many different ways. 
I think one of the most stark ways that we've seen that is the the prevalence or the the rise of drag queen story hour, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I've seen you speaking out on this, or even even just your changing your pronouns, like we just saw with Demi Lovato. I'd seen you posted something on Twitter about that, um, where she, you know, was a, a an adult female. Mm-hmm. a woman right and then became non-binary changed her pronouns and now all of a sudden she's feeling female again so she's mm-hmm. back to she her pronouns mm-hmm. so talk to us about that a little bit what what have you seen maybe how the drag queen story hour because that's geared towards young kids might be influencing society now and in the future and mm-hmm. what the tools they are using to do that as that as that is an example yeah, I, well, the drag, the drag movement, or the drag, the, the drag mania uh, that's that's happening now is, um, you know, it is a ve- it's a vector of attack. It's a it is a you know mid level cultural violence on traditional modes, right? So that the, the idea is to transgress, find the thing which has some uh, cultural legitimacy um, within a subculture that can be used as a vehicle to, um, in a sort of Trojan horse way, to undermine the norms, uh, the traditional norms, and create anxiety around people's justifications for those norms. So Mm -hmm. the drag queen entering the space with the kids or taking the kids to pride, drag your kids to pride, all these things are to, is to sort of go beyond shocking the bourgeoisie and, and putting and, and really destabilizing the, the sense of identity that people have that's tied to their actual sex. Well, uh, and I, and, when you say yeah. the bourgeoisie, you're meaning the middle class, the, the majority. Yeah, the, the, yeah, the middle, the middle okay. class, um, the, the, the silent majorities, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And what you're seeing now is you're seeing a reaction, a, a, a consciousness among the formerly silent majorities that something has been pushed too far. I mean, I can't, I, I have many Gen X friends of mine who are, you know, I came from a very liberal progressive town that are saying, yeah, this is fucked up. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want this, you know? And mm-hmm. so, you know, they have, they have pushed to the point where they are, you know, their attempts, I believe have hit a kind of a, a psychic wall. And it's going to yeah. be interesting because it's like, you know, when it's a very powerful movement. So when, what happens when a, irresistible force meets an immovable object we're going to find out um yeah the 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 thing about drag which is interesting is that you see this justification for it oh it's just let's pretend it's dress up anyone who doesn't like it is is homophobic or transphobic um and you 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 see the the messaging around it is to is to minimize the clear sexual provocation of the art form. I think it is an art form and I do have respect for drag uh, as an adult art form. Uh, it has an irony about it. Uh, if you read Susan Sontag camp, you know, there's, there, there's a lot of interesting things about it. I'm a big fan of the musical Hedwig and the angry inch, uh, which is draws a lot of drag culture. That musical, by the way, is, has tried, they tried to reconstruct it as this kind of, um, you know, gender anthem when actually it's an anti-grooming message. The story is about a young uh, gay boy who is 
groomed by an adult to get a sex change operation, which is botched. Um, so there's a lot there. There's a lot to drag, but but where you draw the line is, does it belong in front of kids? Does it belong in mm-hmm. church? Clearly no. Yeah. Uh, so, so in order for them to gain access to that, there has to be this message of it's kid stuff, right? It's, yeah. and if you don't like it, you're a bigot. Yeah. And, you know, it's dress up. But when you actually, what I've tried to do in my writing, my, the pieces that I've written about it, and recently a drag queen actually came to the school where I used to teach Grace Church and, and danced in the church, this beautiful church, danced down the aisle. You know, the kids were pressured to, to join in. Uh, and, you know, this man in a dress is flashing his ass crack in the altar. And mm-hmm. that's supposed to be this wonderful, inclusive thing. And in fact, like the inclusion of obscenity, the inclusion of, of blasphemy is the point. The point is to include the blasphemy as a ver- sign of virtue, right? We are, it's almost like costly signaling of an animal, right? We are so virtuous that we can afford to include the ultimate blasphemy and pat ourselves on the back about it. So, uh, you know, but the, these are these are kids. Some of them were, you know, there were middle schoolers there and, as well as high schoolers. They didn't, t- they didn't announce the middle schoolers, but they were there visiting. Uh, so, you know, this is this is an outrage. And we have this conflict now, this this cultural conflict around this very extremely self-conscious political decision to introduce these. This performance to little kids to destabilize their sense of identity as a political project. And, you know, what I'm trying to do is say, look, this is not kid stuff. Here's how we know. Look at this person. This is a person held up as a role model. What do kids do? They go on social media. They look at the Instagram. They look at the TikTok. What does this person have on their Instagram? Well, they have stuff about glory holes. They have, they have stuff about fisting. They have stuff about turning, turning, getting turned out, which basically means groomed. Right. They, you know, they have stuff, you know, one in the pink, two in the stink. I'm actually yeah. writing, I'm writing, a, a, I can't believe I'm writing a piece about private school education and I'm quoting that phrase. You know, what does that, what does that say? Um, so, but I think a lot of the, you know, people don't understand the demimond aspect, the sexual provocation of this, the mm-hmm. fact that obscenity and filth and the, you know, the playing with obscenity and filth is not not only part of that world, but also being brought in consciously. I know James Lindsay had a, reviewed an academic paper, mm-hmm. um, you know, where they talk about you know to to enfilth or to to make filthy. Forget the exact quote. Is that's one of the one of the important salient parts of drag uh, to embrace that. Yeah, uh, you know, if you see, and I remember growing, I remember going to movies like Pink Flamingos, right? If you want to mm-hmm. know about drag culture. Pink Flamingos was a, was a huge cult hit. Uh, right. and, and certainly that's part of it. And there's, I'm not going to say there's no place for that in culture. Right. Well, it's yeah, I, th- I want to make, I want to make you that know, point like, too. I want to make that point, yeah. especially when we're talking about teachers here, because a lot of times it's teachers and administrators bringing this into a school setting in the effort to um, be inclusive. Yeah. Right. And yeah, so exactly. inclusion is, um, understanding that word that when you use the word, from the legal standpoint to include something means to exclude something else. And so what they're saying is that this is moral virtue and mm-hmm. what is the opposite of this is not. So if you mm-hmm. speak out against this, then you are the person who needs to be cast out 
right? And right. so it puts you in this dichotomous state. And that's the danger of inclusion. But what teachers do on their own time, right? And they're mm-hmm. in the, as long as it's, you know, their private lives or, or whatever that is, that's your deal, right? What you watch, what you, um, who you're with, um, uh, that's, but it should remain there, right? That's the point is that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, having gone through education school, earlier in the century <laughs> um it was it was told you know don't bring this stuff into the classroom because and that's not just to protect the student it is at first to protect the student but it's also to protect the teacher right at that point because mm-hmm. it can get you in trouble it can ruin your career it can do all of those kinds of things and mm-hmm. so uh, this this notion of inclusion has flipped that on its head almost to where you now see even in in the younger, very young pre-K, kindergarten, all this stuff being actually injected, which is where Drag Queen Story Hour is geared towards, right? Um, you know, kindergarten, pre-K through third or fourth grade, oftentimes is where it's kind of geared towards. They're trying to, to I don't want to use the word, but recruit a certain mindset uh, early on so that when they get older, it, that's what becomes the moral good. Right. Right. And, uh, and it, yeah. And, and there's something actually, I've thought about this, right. Let's say that you were, you were a person who realized that society was, let's say was restrictive, right. And you were raising your children to be more open to things outside of the, of, to, to be like inclusive. And in, I was going to steal man inclusion, right. It would be like, you know what, I want my child to be open-minded. Um, and so I'm going to actually kind of, you know, I want to, I, I want to bring in new things so that I'm so I, so that things that are valued and things that are not currently valued are sort of seen to be equal in a way. Like I want to draw, mm-hmm. an, create a, a wider circle that has everything equal within it. Mm-hmm. But in the process of widening that circle, I have to value the stuff outside more than what's inside. Exactly. Right? You can't, there is no value neutral way right. to do inclusion right. because you're right. directing the attention and saying this new thing is better than this old thing. And in fact, the old thing, you don't even, you're a kid. You don't even understand why the old thing is old because you're right. new. So you're, you're actually, you're actually celebrating the, the other stuff more than the old stuff. Right. So it creates a higher. It's a discrimination. It's right. Discrimination. It's a discrimination. And so when you, there is no value neutral way to sort of put your finger on the scale. And I think I think that it's being sold as we just want to bring in more things. Right. Everyone's the same. But there's actually in practice, there's no way to do it, especially right. to, and that- especially to children who are who are really conscious of what is good and bad. Right. Good mm-hmm. and bad. Good and bad. So right. Good you know, and bad. You'll, and then you'll see the teachers say things. They'll try to. And the, sometimes they'll try to to square the circle and they'll say, well, you know, maybe you're someone who is assigned the same gender at birth that you are, that your genitals are. And that's mm-hmm. okay. You know, and, but they'll say things like, well, maybe you're not in the gender box. You're not, you're outside the gender box. So then it's sort yeah. of like, well, would I rather be free outside the gender box or in my gender right. box? Well, I'm, right. I want to be free. Right. So, so you, there's always a value judgment. You can't escape the necessity of it. Well, and that begs the question, all of that begs the question, can we have both? You know what I mean? Can we have it both ways to where we have a moral society, you know, or mm-hmm. that or that values the things, you know, we all remember the infamous 
uh, whiteness infographic that came out of the Smithsonian a few years ago. By the way, that, that originated from research done by a, it originated from a former professor at the University of Oklahoma named Was Judith that Tama Oaken? Oh, no, who? Judith Katz. Oh, Judith Katz, Katz came up with yeah, that. Yeah, James and I worked on that together. James and I worked, I wrote an article. Uh, it's on my Substack, but basically um, she wrote the precursor in 1978 mm. called okay. uh, to to white fragility called white awareness. I mean, um, she was one of yeah. the first on the scene of uh, critical white studies. Oh, wow. I gotta, I gotta and, check that out. Yeah. It's called white awareness. And she's, then she left to create an NGO um, that basically has spread DEI, you know, trainings all over the world. And it was her research that was used to create that, that infographic. But my point mm -hmm. is, is that that infographic, tells us uh, going back to the race issue for just a second um i don't want to leave the gender issue but that when you start demonizing you know being on time and the scientific method and linear thinking as whiteness and whiteness is therefore something to be discriminated against in order to include other forms of knowledge the epistemological you know crucifix here right if you want to call it that mm -hmm. right it's 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 discrimination on the front end which is against the law right because one you're doing it to someone's identity and how they may and you're doing it to a whole mode of life that has actually mm -hmm. proven over time at least in the last 200 years 250 years that will produce greater outcomes for society as a whole, which was kind of the American experiment, right? It's, it's let's throw all these people in here together. We've all got these different values. We've got these different cultures. And the market, the actual free market of ideas at that point will lead towards a, an explosion of, of success in society and, and, and a success of human life, longevity, Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? Mm -hmm. And so that hits that point. So can we have it both ways then? Can we have, you know, being on time and logical linear thinking and you can be a girl if, you're, if, you're, if your biological sex is a boy, but you can be a girl if you feel like it and you can change your pronouns if you then feel like a girl again with the Demi Lovato. Can we have it both ways? <laughs> can we? No, it's really, I mean, I, I think about the, one of the things I like to say a lot is that we've gone from stereotyping gender to gendering stereotypes. Oh, so, you know, we had this, we had this restrictive society around gender roles in the fifties and sixties and right. And the sixties opened that up. And I remember in the nineties of growing up in, you know, wonderful progressive Ithaca, New York, you know, there was this really powerful movement that I think was really helpful was that if you were a girl, you didn't have to act like a girl. If you were a boy, you didn't have to act like a boy. You could act, you know, you could express yourself as a girl in any one ways and as a boy the same way. But then at some point it kind of rounded the backside of the moon and we came back with this thing where if you express, if you have this expression, well, maybe that means that you're actually the thing that the stereotype that you're expressing. And so we're mm -hmm. going to gender engender the stereotype by, you know, completely transforming to the point of body mutilation, your sex, I mean, your, your, your actual identity. And so uh, that to me is, 
the first thing is bad. The second thing is worse. And there were, you know, mm -hmm. we kind of, we had this sort of sweet spot for a decade or so. And right. then it just, it just. Progressivism progresses. Progressivism yeah, it progresses. Progress. Um, it, it has no stop button. It's built mm -hmm. in. It cannot stop because there's always a new moral good. That's what actually feeds it. Right. So it becomes this kind of, um, you know, circular progression in a loop that goes and goes and you get the sweet spot for a minute where it's vertically aligned. Right. I think it's like, and I, maybe I've seen this and I'm just implanting it this into my description here before, but um, whether it's, I think I've seen it in terms of what James talks about and, and fury and all of them. I've seen it as but, kind of a spiral, like a yes. spiral. I, yeah. well, I, but I'm seeing it kind of uh, horizontal because yeah. progressivism goes right. It goes one direction. Mm -hmm. And if you're doing it, like this, you get a vertical alignment for a time, but then it yeah. hits again and then moves forward and then dot and then hits again and then moves forward, right? And that's where it becomes destructive, right? Because mm -hmm. you could maybe make the case that, okay, drag queens, girls, boys dressing up as girls might be something that adolescents do on their own. And it's, and as long as they're doing it on their own and they're not being pushed towards it and they're just kind of being funny or what are your Groucho Marx mm -hmm. kind of situation, right? Where it's like, you're making fun or just being fun or even just cause you, whatever, there's not an adult influence there. Right. Yeah. It's a spontaneous sort of it's organic right. carnivalesque, you know, something that, that emerged is an emergent property of simply having boundaries, to cultural boundaries. I mean, right. kids are always testing boundaries and, you know, but, you know, there, there, there's, there's this moment where it actually becomes a, cons it's a deeply conservative thing, actually, to say, mm -hmm. you know, my expression determines my identity and is therefore yeah. this, this identity that I must carry with me. I mean, it's a Christian it's almost thing. like, yeah, like, yeah. I, I was thinking today that a lot, like why, what's behind the narcissism in a way, like, if you look at, if you look at this as a narcissistic phenomenon and you can say, well, it's it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a disease of prosperity and various things It could be part of that. But I think it's more that we have, we cannot stay in a kind of secular state for long. I think that there's yeah. a kind of a reaction. So, so you have children growing up with tremendous anxiety because there isn't, there isn't this moral structure or collective mm -hmm. moral structure. And so like in that, in that, there, you, if you're going to express yourself, you're like, you're trying to yell into a waterfall. You're trying, you're, you're experiencing so much criticality that mm -hmm. you, it is a kind of an autism that you are, yeah. you, you are divorced from society and must constantly justify yourself socially. So if you can find a thing like an identity, which is like a, a sigil, like for your expression, and you can create this carapace that other people must respect, you know, then that is a vehicle that gives you the confidence to express the thing. Because mm -hmm. you know that socially it's lubricated and that people have to accept you because that's my identity. So you have yeah. to, you know, it's, it's a, it's like a, a protein shield for the, for the message that you're sending. And that, I mean, that makes sense to me. That's like, oh yeah. Like you people, kids growing up today are a tremendous anxiety around you know, their, their own worth and their, and there's tremendous insecurity around that. And so like having this thing and, and apparently even Demi Lovato suffers from it. And in fact, right. many people who are, who, who are traffic in the, in the sort of, uh, I want to say the professions of narcissism, actors uh, being one of them, um, you know, they're the most vulnerable too. So it is, it is interesting. Um, but what I, what I, 
what I don't, what I dislike most about making drag queens role models is that they actually teach children that true self-esteem comes from outside validation. Yes. That, you know, right. this mutual admiration society where tell me I'm wonderful and tell me I'm beautiful. And, you know, if you don't, then you're a hater. And, you know, I need to, this, this, this tremendous need, you know, and, and we need to get back to some kind of some interdirected, uh, and maybe there's no way to do that without God. I don't know. Like I'm, yeah. you know. Well, and, and it also teaches you that the more noticeable you are, the more important you are to society mm -hmm. because the drag queens will even admit, right. That everything is overblown. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're, mm -hmm. they're, they're kind of, uh, character, they're caricatures to exactly. not use that word in a pejorative, but, a, right. but a, a, of, of the female form as taken by a male. That is the definition of drag queens, you know, in terms of just the base way of thinking about it, right? Right, right. right. And and therefore it is a certain art form. Mm -hmm. Right. And I am I'm a musician, I'm a classic musician, I'm a conductor. So that's what I'm getting my my doctoral work in and, and but I, I want to explore this a little bit because you showed me something that I have yet to see and so i'm interested to see it but it's a they're using art as propaganda is something that is happening on a whole scale now mm -hmm. right and i think drag queen story hour is, a, is an example of that because you're taking an art form that's an adult art form you're moralizing it to the point that you can now bring it into children's um spaces and normalize that for them so that as they get older they will adopt that mindset is it being a moral good, right? That's mm -hmm. the goal. That's what we mean by the G word, right? Um, that, mm -hmm. that shall not be spoken, right? Um, that's, and it's not necessarily, that's the other point I want to make in terms of that word. We're not necessarily only talking about a sexual form of that word. This is a psychosexual towards a political goal. Right. It's, it's right. And we're talking about sexual identities. Well, then that's sex. And you you, right. you have a kind of ideological grooming around sex. I mean, and, well, and identity and is a misnomer, too, because a lot of time it's it's uh, it's and you don't even want to use this word because you'll get called a bigot. But it's it's a it's a manipulation of your preference. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and I'm not saying that there aren't people who are born gay. I'm not saying that there are. I mean, I was born straight. I can't. I, I, that's what makes me accept that argument that there are people born gay is because I was born straight and I can't be gay if I want to. But there's also a nature versus nurture when you get kids young and you can influence a direction, I believe, mm -hmm. to a certain extent. That was the whole mark against conversion therapy because it's harder to do when you're older, when you're a teenager, when you're, you know, you're more set in those ways. Puberty is already hit. But mm -hmm. kids are a blank slate. They have nothing. Many of them don't have that sexual urge. And I'm not saying that you can make them gay. I'm not saying you can make someone straight. Uh, I'm just saying that you can nudge them. And this is another whole thing that we could get into. But this whole effort, this whole idea of social nudging, um, which is what is part of this. Mm -hmm. But I want to hit this artistic point of view because art is propaganda. We've seen that as as long as. Uh, history, you know what I mean? Whether it's, mm -hmm. you know, just want to look at war and um, some of the, the stuff that was done on both sides during World War II, that's a great example. Um, or, you know, in in the Civil War and then before that, 
art has always been used to, to bring a message. And you showed me, I'm going to make sure I can share this again. Yeah, I, I wonder. Um, yeah, go ahead. People want to see the the actual drag queen in the church that lives at TikTok. Oh yeah, yeah. Let's, so let's maybe let's, show that first, and then okay. and then you know that might okay. be. Yeah. So let me let me copy that in there, and then okay. we we I, I showed you a a video by one of the people involved in the event. Okay. Yeah. Um, let's which kind of which kind of is I think kind of a fascinating thing. Um, but this first thing it's it's the latest link in the private chat. Yeah, let me yeah. let me share it here real quick. So what what just go ahead and explain this to us again um, while I'm getting it up here. What what is it that we're about to see? Okay, so you, what you're about to see is a pride chapel. Is it every every two weeks at Grace Church School they have chapels, and then this is a this is video from a from a pride chapel which they hold in April because ever, the seniors have graduated in June, which is Pride Month, so they do it early. And for this chapel, and you know they invited a drag queen to come dance on the altar of the church, beautiful mm -hmm. church, and, and, you know, and talk about their appearance on RuPaul's drag race and drag culture. And then, and then do some more dancing, um, uh, which exhorting the kids to really join in. And Her name is. Yeah. So, and so, so go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, this is the video here. Can everybody mm -hmm. see, or can you see it? Oh, mm -hmm. Okay. Just making sure. Yep. So, just want to get it here. Her name is Britta Filter, and she is the Queen of New York! Yeah. That's the musical director. That's the music director? Yeah. So, and you can definitely see more of this person than you would yeah, want to uh, in a church setting for sure. Her name right. is. Yeah. And, um, you know, so there's that aspect of it. There's, you know, visible ass crack. Uh, but there's also, you know, you know, eight pairs of tights, but, right. you know, it's there. Um, but in, in a sense, what I'm, what, what concerns me more is the, this, the elevation of the superficial. Yes within a context which is supposed to transcend it right? right so this this uh this merging of the profane and the sacred not profane necessarily yeah you know in the obscenity sense but also yeah. profane and simply like the Spectacle. the parts of the human experience you know which which are there to like grab your attention and the spectacle of it so you know we can have a whole conversation about that but um, um, but but I I want to hit that for just a second because yeah. I grew up in the Word of Faith movement as a Christian and I think that's something that evangelicals uh, have done to the detriment of society that everything now has to be in church is not about the introspection and the vertical alignment between heart and God right and I'm a Christian mm -hmm. obviously but it's the extrospection you know it's the mm -hmm. the the lights and the sound and the guitar and the drums and the yeah like and, mega and, churches you mean. Yes. Yes. Yeah, well, you're it. talking yeah. about your Kenneth Copeland's or your Benny Hens or or your Joel Osteen's, you know, and mm -hmm. and I grew up with my family watching that stuff. And actually, we transplanted in our church, you know, and to the point that they would make fun of 
the mainstream religions who did not act that way and would pejorativize them or demonize them as not being on fire for God or whatever it is, but missing the whole point that it became very, it was an egotistical pursuit mm -hmm. rooted in materialism itself. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, and so, yeah. and I, I, what, what I don't think that people are understanding is that this is a extension of that, you know, all the yeah. evangelicals mm -hmm. that are very upset right now about seeing things like this need to understand that some of the ways that you are bracing church's entertainment have led to this kind of perversion of that. It's, it's again, that progression, you get a nice alignment for a minute and then it, boom, it pops out of the bubble and, and moves forward into something mm -hmm. you didn't necessarily want. And then we accept it again and you get an alignment and it, boom, it moves out. And so I just wanted to make that. Yeah, point that's really, that's an excellent point. And, you know, it's funny because um, I paid, I paid close attention to, you know, with trolls that come on and, and post things. And one of the, you know, people will say things like, well, what's the big deal about ass crack? I mean, they see that on the beach, right? So, so, but, you, but, but the mindset really, really interests me, like get into the mindset because yes, yes, yeah. they see that at the beach. Is there, does, okay. So like, there's a whole question about context, right? Does context matter? And does the sacred and the profane, the existence of the profane mean that in every context, the profane is welcome or should be welcome or right. what makes it profane? I mean, and the thing you said about spectacle you could have the devil's advocate. It's like, well, what's, what is that beautiful cathedral designed to do? It's mm -hmm. a spectacle designed, you know, as a bridge to connect these, the, the material with the spiritual, right? These are, that's what art is. Art is the material that connects you to the spiritual. It's a bridge. Um, but what happened, I mean, that's a thing like a cathedral. It takes, you know, hundreds of years to produce right. or, and so the eternal is almost embedded in the art form, whereas something exactly. like this is transitory. And so there's a lot of different ins and outs to that. But someone could say, like, listen, this drag is the way that people connect to the spiritual through, you know, the tension. And this is just another form of spectacle. But when someone says just, it's almost it's almost that's the tell is to yeah. say that, you know, this is you know, that, this, this high art thing that you admire Mm -hmm. is actually you know this is is just another version of this new thing right so you don't get all on your high horse about this high art and mm -hmm. that's really a that's really a process that's happened in our culture for well and, and, and you're, you're getting into, yeah yeah you're getting into where i have I've done a lot of study here just in terms of my own art form because you're talking about choral arts you're talking about classical mm -hmm. music and you 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 know kant would say there's no disputing taste right mm -hmm. you know that's what emmanuel kant would say but whether or not that taste has an influence, a positive influence on society is a different question, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And when you talk about the cathedrals, right, the cathedrals were built around the people mm -hmm. and they always pointed up. Mm -hmm. That's the thing is that, and mm -hmm. so when you, when, when you have a directional spectacle, right, when you talk mm -hmm. about the, the, if you saw in that video, the big area at the front Mm -hmm. was was designed to bring the eye there but it was not around one person it actually mm -hmm. made the person look small yeah that's yeah, the whole exactly. point humility right the, the, right and what and what are we watching pride right so right this, all of and, pride is itself the antithesis of what you're talking about right and so when you talk about high art in terms of religion and, and those older mainline religions the art was built to make the person or the individuals pale in comparison to the, the God that was being worshipped. And it did that from the pew 
and even the person being far away, because the person being far away would view the priest in the in the the rostrum area mm-hmm. as a small individual, a representative mm-hmm. of the voice of God. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? And yeah, so, totally, really. Yeah, and they're and, watching the the you know the smallness of the vessel, you know, right. and themselves they have a connection, but it but the or, the the relative sizing yes helps communicate it yeah yes and that that and what and i think your point about just is when you're trying to make an apples to apples comparison if you want to draw a straight line from 1619 to 2019 or you you know what i'm saying Mm -hmm. you remove all the context and that's what i've noticed that Mm -hmm. that you know in my own work and i don't want to get too deep into this but when they wanted to rip down the jefferson memorial right they said that they wanted to do that because jefferson owned slaves and Monticello is a fitting memorial, right? So, mm-hmm. and because it has the slave housing, but they removed the entire context of when the memorial was built and why it was built. And when it was built was 1943, mm-hmm. in the middle of World War II, and it was dedicated and if it, it, in a direct defiance to fascism and racism of the Nazi movement. That's mm-hmm. that's why it was built mm-hmm. because it was the ideas that built it. And FDR said this in his speech when he dedicated it. He said, "This is bigger than the man." whose name is on it. It points upward. The ideas mm-hmm. undergird this. It's the Jefferson Memorial, but only because Jefferson put the ideas on paper. And it's and he said, Jefferson is in the foxholes with you. Now, not the body of Jefferson. The body of Jefferson is dead. The man who owns slaves is dead. But his ideas transcend his mortal body mm-hmm. and are with us with now fighting this war. And so I think when you talk about this drag queen subset and it being put into a, a, a church like that, or what we're about to watch here in a minute, we're pointing everything downward into the individual. And I'm not saying individuality is bad, but when you start to use that to pervert, uh, that's a that's a strong word, but to, uh, I'm going to use it, to, to pervert yeah. the kind of subset yeah. of what an individual should yeah. be. Right, derange yeah. people in their minds at a young age especially. That becomes a difficult thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah, exactly. So so this next thing is, uh, it's a public YouTube video, music video made by the musical director who... Um, so this is the musical director we just saw. Yeah, at the front of the altar. Now, this is his own project. Um, you, you know, there are colleagues in, in this video. This is his original music. At a Drag Queen Story Hour, he did have... S- several students in elementary school singing this song with um in front of other parents uh but it it you know talking about vanity just just i want to keep in mind as you watch this what we what we were discussing around vanity and spectacle and the focus of you know the spiritual focus of things mm-hmm. um anyway i just yeah this so is let's, just something I noticed. Someone said this to me today. So, okay. Well, let's let's see what this is because I have not seen this yet, and we'll we'll talk about it after right. we play.
line in between holding hands and kissing you it takes courage like they've never seen and we don't play by your There's the school librarian, there's the drama director. Um, and now the children. Yeah, and you know, there was some kids on a bus, school bus, there's a naked man in a bathtub. Uh, this goes on and on. Um, maybe we can post the link, but um, the, the important, the thing that strikes me is like the the transcendental signifier is love, right? So uh-huh. love is the, love is the, is the door. Right. Okay. And come through the, cause everyone needs love. It's natural. It's comfortable. Um, when I watch this, like I, I, it, it's, it feels deeply irresponsible to me. Yes. Now this is a private, this is his own thing. It's public, but I actually think the song is catchy. I think, yeah, the song he, is he's catchy. A, he's a very talented musician. He's a good singer. Mm-hmm. Um, but but you know what is this? And what is the what is Purpose. is my reaction to this? Uh, feeling like this is inappropriate. Is this legitimate? Or I don't know. Am I a bigot? Well, Am I? Well, I don't know. Let, let me let me hit this for a second because and I think I know. I I think you do too. <laughs> I think, but. I, it's comfortable. It's natural. It's spiritual. It's love. That's. Right. I mean, these are the things. Um, children, music has a has a profound uh, effect on the soul, but also on the mind. Okay, just point this out. This is my. This is actual my mm-hmm. expertise. Don't believe me? Try to say the say the ABCs without singing them. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally. And so when you have these kids involved here, right, and you're presenting if you were to not have the video and just listen to it the message Mm -hmm. okay uh, minus a couple of parts wasn't very explicit it's just comfortable natural spiritual love but then you implant a visual to that right now you have a two-tier delivery system Mm -hmm. right to impart a two-tiered message right acceptance love spiritual comfortability for for all people as but as much as we can okay maybe you can make an argument that that's the moral virtue right that is the mott and then or you know and then mm-hmm. or the the bailey whichever one is which i can never remember but then you add the the visual to it the mm-hmm. visual art form then you see people in nipple tassels and laying on beds mm-hmm. half clothed and you know then juxtaposed with another image of kids waving pride flags fully clothed right but then another again you you have another provocative image Mm -hmm. that's what we're talking about when you talk about a recruitment effort Mm -hmm. or the g word yeah exactly yeah and and the you know there's also it's self-consciously political i think there's a line that says you know they don't understand uh Mm -hmm. this is something that we're doing and and later in the in the video i think one of the lyrics is um, you know, until everybody understands, you know, once everyone gets it, we'll all be free, a kind of a liberatory yeah. message, which is, mm-hmm. these are explicitly political. Uh, they, they fit right in with, you know, the, 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 uh, 
you know, the utopian idea of radical gender theory, mm-hmm. which has its own kind of eschaton. Um, so, yeah, no, I think it's, I think it's fascinating. Um, and I, I think like these documents that are, this isn't the only teacher, there are lots of teachers that are doing this kind of thing. Uh, they, they just, they, they do, they do challenge us in a way, you know? Right. Um, so I think, I think the more that, uh, that I can bring it and sort of show it to people yeah. and sort of have them, you know, something I, I hope that he'd be happy with them. I'm sure he wants people to watch this. He it's on right. public on YouTube. So, right. you know, maybe. Well, and it, it, here's the other thing that people must understand from an artistic standpoint, if you put art into the world, you as an artist must accept that it's going to be critiqued, whether that's a mm. positive or a negative. If you don't anticipate that, or if you if you don't want it to be critiqued, don't put it into the world. That's the other mm. part of this. There's not a there's not a you know if I if I were to sit here and write a song and play it on my guitar and sing it to you and put it out on YouTube, and I leave the comments open on my thing, right? I must be prepared for the responses, right? And when you are, if I were to then take that song and implant vi- visual images of children. You must then be prepared for the critique of how that might affect the kids that you're obviously pointing this towards. And also, let's make the connection between the fact that this is a private video done in his own private musician capacity, but he's also the music director of a church, and we can see the same imagery now being Mm -hmm. transplanted to the congregation inside the church. Right, Uh, and later in the video, the reverend appears in this video. So oh really? Reverend, yeah, the the can actual we, reverend in yeah. I, know, I if you can, we can keep watching or you can scroll. Well, I think no, it's I like two minutes, to... two minutes in, or maybe. Well, and also uh, there's there's also okay two minutes. Let me get two maybe maybe two minutes and uh, I think if, if you play from here, okay, probably be okay. Let me. Yeah, I think it's. I guess we have our own well, and even just the use room. of the flag all the time. Yeah. Well, and the, the, the BLM on the chest there. Yes. Um, well, and this isn't just geared towards gay people. Obviously, there's yeah scantily clad women as well right there's the reverend yeah making the sign of the cross with the heart and the flag okay well so you get the picture yes and uh, that's the other part of this is that it it weaponizes the empathy of christians to give up a lot of the mainline doctrine that undergirds christianity and has made it last for centuries Mm -hmm. now and so that's something that we ought, we have to think about. Um, there's a campaign. Um, there's a campaign to notify the um, the rector um, of the church um, mm-hmm. people who aren't comfortable with what what we saw in the church. And I do have a response from him. Um, he says the church supports the school in its efforts to explore inclusion and affirm the value of all people imperfect though the results of those efforts may sometimes be 
if you feel the need to contact the diocese, go for it. And this is just, uh, what is the denomination here? Uh, Episcopal. This is Episcopal. Episcopal. It was mistakenly identified as Catholic because the performer, Jesse Haveo, put that on his TikTok. And so there was some confusion. But Mm -hmm. it is Episcopal. There is a diocese. Um, I don't know much about like the organization of Episcopal churches, but. Well, I do. Well, I know a little bit. And they, they, there's a lot. I will say this. The, The way that they intersect with Episcopal schools. Uh, many of the Episcopal schools are, are taking this in as as the the doctrine in, in a Christian standpoint that mm-hmm. that the acceptance of all people is the ultimate moral good, you mm-hmm. know, and and they 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 take the two kind of Christ quotes, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, which is what he said. Second, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your spirit. Well, that entails. I don't want to get into a preaching thing, but that entails a whole line of of obeying a whole bunch of different things that the Lord said, mm-hmm. because that is it. Mm-hmm. And then, but they take the love your neighbor as yourself. Well, and they've kind of even pervert that statement and they move that towards inclusion, right? We must include everybody. But as we said before, the inclusion of something, it does denote the discrimination of the other. Mm-hmm. Always. That's mm-hmm. a, that's the legal term in terms of the Supreme Court even. So mm-hmm. it's something we need to think about. Well, wow, that's kind of shocking. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, Paul, I, I don't know if we should end it right there, but I'll, I'll tell you this. I want to say this again, just, and this is just from me to you personally. When you came out and did what you did publicly, your courage and your your strength of standing up in public and saying, this is wrong. This this needs this needs to be questioned, and it should be allowed to be questioned, even by a math teacher in a school, or especially by a math teacher in a school, regardless of your race, your color, or your creed, was an inspiration to me, and I know to a lot of teachers out there, when we were all kind of keeping our heads down, um, and running away from this, not even actively, but just by avoiding it at all costs. So I just wanted to thank you for that. Thanks, in addition Mark. to coming on to the podcast, how, how can we find you? I want to make sure everybody follows you and where you're writing. Um, sure. Yeah. I've um, wrote a piece about this event, the post-millennial. I'm, I've also have many pieces in legal insurrection, uh, legalinsurrection.com. Um, I did uh, recently did a piece on the grading for equity mm-hmm. movement um in in private schools and public schools really everywhere now um so yeah please check out my my work there and you dms are open on twitter my twitter's right there paul d rossi and thank god we just got you back on twitter (laughs) yeah that was a that was a whole thing but i mean i got i had a lot of support from from my friends and and legal help and i'm really grateful for that yeah um so it was about eight seven eight weeks i was out Great to be back. It felt like an eternity. (laughs) Thanks. And, 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 but you know, this is another, the the purge that's going on right now is a, is a real, real problem. Yeah. And so hopefully, you know, I work. And and it's for speaking out against things like this. That's right. Right. And and not even this. And I will say this to everybody that Paul is really tame on Twitter uh, compared to a lot of us, even myself at times. And, and, you know, 
people that have larger followings. So I think that that Twitter coming after him was a was a testament to the quality of the work he's doing and the points he's making. Um, and thank you. Just goes to show that he's somebody worth following and keeping up with. So thank you, Paul, for being here, and uh, we hope to have you on again soon. Thanks. I'd love to. Thank you.